You're listening to the RUF at UT podcast. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. For more information, go to www.utk.ruf.org. The scripture reading tonight is from Judges 6, and it's up here. Y'all can follow along in uh, your bulletin. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the sands that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them, and they would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land, as far as Gaza, and leave no sustenance in Israel, and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock in their tents, and they would come up like locusts in number, both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste and land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you out from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you, and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abizarite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, a mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where we are, all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not, I send you. And he said to them, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. So we've been talking through... Um the book of Judges, and if you've been with us, um, then hopefully this little intro that I'm about to give will be familiar to you. If you haven't been with us, then here it is. The book of Judges, I've been saying each week, is a collection of true stories that are written with the intent to show you two things, that you have a great need for a Savior, and you have a great Savior for your need. And if you're going to do life well, if your life is going to get off the ground, you have to have both of those realities uh, press home in your heart. It's like two wings of an airplane. You have to have both. And the passage that we just read, uh, or that Corinne just read, is uh, interesting because we get to a point in the book of Judges where it has in the past been focusing on an individual person, individual judge, for just a couple of verses, sometimes even only one verse. But we get to this dude named Gideon, and he gets three chapters. So he's important enough that we're going to spend two weeks on. We're going to hang out with him tonight, and we'll hang out with him again uh, Next week. But to set this up, here's what I want to do. I don't know if you are familiar, but there was a story in 2011 that uh, when UT was gearing up to play a home football game against MTSU, and uh, our coach at the time was a man named Derek Dooley. I'm sure some of y'all feel fondly about him. And um, uh, we had a kicker 
that had been injured in uh, a previous game and was recovering, and they thought he was going to be able to go, but then when it came to be game day, uh, the coach realized and the coach found out he could not play. He, he, was, he, he had not recovered from his injury. So, okay, NBD, they just brought in their second-string kicker, the backup. So during warm-ups before the game, an hour before the game starts, he pulls a muscle and can't play in the game. So, okay, let's get the backup to the back. And they bring in the third-string kicker for this game. The only problem is, is this third-string kicker, who is, whose name is Derek uh, Brodus, Brodus, B, what is it? Brodus? Brodus. We're going to go with Brodus. Um, Derek Brodus uh, was not in the stadium. He hadn't even suited up. He actually was down the street at a frat house pre-gaming before the game. Because he was like, I'm a third-string kicker. I haven't, I haven't suited up all season. I'm not playing this game. So he just was watching this game, you know, gearing up to watch the game like everybody else, hanging out with his bros, watching Sports Center or whatever. And uh, uh, Derek Dooley says, we've got to go get him. He's got to play. In fact, after the fact, they interviewed him, and I read this article, and, it said, and here's what our coach said at the time. It said, he said, an intoxicated Brodus is better than nobody. We didn't have any other options. So they send a police escort down to this frat house. I don't know which frat house it was. They literally, he's sitting on the couch, like in sweatpants, and they pull him off the couch. They, put, they escort him into Neyland Stadium. Once they get him to the stadium, they give him a breathalyzer, and the article said um, he was in good enough condition <laughs> to get on his pad, you know, put on his pads and play the game. And just for the record, he was three for three for extra points. And the only field goal attempt he made. So, not bad for having uh, nothing in your stomach but Cheetos and Natty Lights. But, you know, he, he, but can you imagine, I just was thinking, can you imagine sitting there on the couch with your bros watching SportsCenter and in come the police totally unannounced and they're like, hey, you're starting today. And the game is in like 30 minutes. So let's go. I mean, I just thought it would have been just totally, you know, he's got Cheeto dust on his fingers still. So it's a crazy, it's a crazy story. But I thought of that because in, our, in the text that Corinne just read for us, uh, God does something very similar with this dude named Gideon. Gideon woke up that day and he, had, he didn't have any grand designs on what that day was going to look like. He didn't have any big ambitions for what his life was going to look like. And yet God shows up totally unannounced and said, hey, get off the couch and get in the game. I'm doing this great thing in the world. I'm renovating all things. I'm bringing spiritual renewal to the world, and I want you to be a part of it. Get off the couch and get in the game. And uh, not only does he do that with Gideon, he does that with us. He kind of wrecking balls into all of our lives and says, I'm pulling you out of your apathetic possibly intoxicated way of living, and I want to bring you into something better. I want to bring you in to participate in this mission that I'm doing in the world. But what I want to focus on in this long passage is the way in which God invites people to do that, the way in which God calls people into doing that. It's very fascinating. He does it by reminding us of two things. He reminds you that God is for you and that he is with you. And those are kind of the two big ideas I want to look at with you tonight. God is for you despite your sin, and he is with you despite your weakness. So let's look at uh, one at a time. God is for you. Let's start in verse 1. That's a good place to start. Uh, 
It says that they, that the Israelites did evil again in the eyes of the Lord. Now, if you've been with us this semester on RUF, this should start to feel a little redundant because here they go again. They keep screwing up. And like I said at the beginning, there's this cycle that happens all throughout this book where they turn from God and they start worshiping other things and then things start to fall apart and they cry out to God. God rescues them and then things are good with God again. And then they turn away from God and here we go over and over and over and over. So here they've turned. And so God raises up this foreign army named Midian, not to be confused with Gideon. Midian with an M, the bad guys in the story. So Midian comes along and they oppress Israel in such a uh, uh, severe way. They, they would take all of the Israelites' food, they would steal their crops, they would burn their stuff. They were just like, they were like mean school bullies that was just like stealing their lunch money. And so Israel, the people of Israel, they're hungry, they're oppressed, they're kind of they're, they're scared, so they cry out to the Lord for help. And here's what he does. This is, this is the first time this happens in the book of Judges. Verse 7 and 8, it says, When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet. Now that's really weird, because every time that the Lord cried out for help, God sends a judge, which, remember, is like a, just a military hero. But instead, God sends a prophet, which is basically like a preacher, so this is really bizarre because think of it like this. Let's just say that you're really sick and you, you, your, your um, throat is hurting and you've, you're snotting all over the place and you're just aching and you just feel awful and so you go to see the doctor. And you're sitting in the little doctor's waiting room and you're waiting for the doctor to come in and in comes a car mechanic after a few minutes. And you're like, that's helpful. But I don't really need a car mechanic right now. I need a doctor. And, and the Israelites, they're like, okay, God, we're getting stomped on over here. We don't need a preacher with a Bible. We need like John Wick and a machine gun. And so he sends this prophet. And look at what the sermon that the prophet gives. Uh, this is verse 8. It says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. God is saying, hey, Israel, I led you up from Egypt and I brought you out of the house of bondage. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. You shall not fear the God of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. For seven eighths of this sermon, God is just rehearsing how much he has loved them. I have rescued you from Egypt. I've conquered your enemies. I've driven them out. I've freed you from slavery. I've brought you into the promised land. I have demonstrated in time and space, I'm committed to you. I love you. I'm for you. I'm for you. I'm for you. And in the very conclusion of his little sermon, verse 10, he says, but you have not obeyed my voice. Here's what God's saying. He is saying, look, you have chosen to abandon the source of life and it has thrown your life into misery. You have chosen to not listen to me, and that's part of the reason why your life is so messed up. I keep blessing you, I keep loving you, and you keep ignoring me. And here's his point. God's point is, uh, your disobedience has consequences. But those painful consequences don't negate the fact that I'm for you, that I love you. Here's the thing. God created the world in such a way where you are free to do whatever you want. You really are free to do whatever you want, but God created the world in such a way where you're not necessarily free from the consequences of those decisions. Get what I'm saying? So, for example, you are free to not pay your tuition. You don't have to pay UT a dime. You're free to do that. They will, you know, drop you from your classes and you won't get a degree. 
but that's a consequence. You know, that's one consequence. Um, you're free to not get a job when you graduate. You might not be able to eat, but if eating is a priority for you, you might want to think about a job. But, but here's the thing, is that you're, you're free to do whatever you want, but you, uh, you know, you're not free from those consequences. And God is letting them experience the pain of their foolish decisions. And here's the thing, um, that doesn't mean that God's not for you. When God lets you experience the pain of, of your disobedient decisions, it's actually his kindness to you to let you feel some of the pain of that. This is a crazy statement, but it is God's kindness for, you, for him to let sin hurt you before it kills you. It's his kindness to let your sin and your foolishness hurt you before it kills you. This is, this, this is you know, think about this. This is why, um, you know, why do dog owners put uh, those collars on their dogs? And so, and so, you know, when the dog, you know, they have the invisible fence, and when the dog gets to the edge of the, you know, edge of the yard, it kind of shocks the dog. It just kind of seems barbaric, on, you know, if you just think about it for, for just a second. But the reason why is because the owners are, you know, the owners are injecting a little bit of hurt into the dog's life to prevent them from experiencing massive hurt if they were to run out on the road and get hit by a car. It's for the dog's good. They're trying to protect the dog. And the same, this is the same rationale behind parenting. Uh, you know, our children, we'll just use uh, my wife and I's kids, sometimes they'll get, you know, frustrated with each other and, you know, hit each other or something. And so when they hit each other, uh, we bring the pain. We bring the, you know, we bring the discipline. We say there's, you know, we, t- we take away screen time. We take away treats for the week. Or, you know, we, we ground them. And, and does that mean that we don't love them? Does that mean we're not for them? No. We want them to experience a little bit of pain now to avoid having to experience massive pain of living their lives later by hitting people whenever they don't get their way. So by God allowing these people, the Israelites, to experience the difficulty of their situation, he's, actually, he's, he's saying, I love you, I'm for you. But this is, this, is kind of, this is y'all's problem. But here's the thing. When you're in that situation and, and you're, in, you're experiencing the painful circumstances of your life, it is easy to interpret that as God is not for us. When things get hard and things get rough, it's easy to interpret your, your situation and say, God doesn't love us, God's not for us. In fact, that's exactly what Gideon does. We're going to look at him a little bit closer here in a second. But look, we'll just jump ahead. Look at um, verse 12. God comes to Gideon and he says, hey, the Lord is with you. And look at Gideon's response in verse 13. He says, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all of his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us, and he's given us into the hand of Midian. You see what he's doing? He is looking at the difficulty of his life, and that is his fixed point. And he's using that fixed point to then interpret God's goodness. (laughs) What are you talking about, God is with us. This is what it means for God to be with us, this foreign army oppressing me and my family, and I'm just scraping by, starving through life. That's what it means for God to be with us. You see what he's doing? This, this, he, his circumstances are his fixed point, and that's how he interprets God. And that, don't we do this? I mean, we do this all the time. We look at our difficulty, our, this, our situations, our struggles. That is what is most real to us, and we use that to be the thing to interpret whether or not God is good. God, how can you be good? How can you say that you're loving? How can you, how can you even exist if this is what's happening in my life? 
Our circumstances become so real, that's what we use to interpret God. That's why God sends this prophet. Because he's just trying to pound into their heads over and over, I love you, I love you, I love you, I'm for you, I'm for you. I've demonstrated in time and space, I am committed to you. I want you to interpret this difficult situation in light of that. I want my love for you to be the fixed point by which you interpret everything else. I mentioned this last semester, but I'll mention it again because it's just too applicable. But earlier this summer, my wife was putting down our son, Reed, who's six years old, plays basketball. And um, he had been getting in trouble uh, because he was staying up late reading books all night. And so my wife, Catherine, took his book away and said, you can't bring books into your bed anymore because you're staying up late just reading books and you're a monster the next day, not getting enough sleep. So she took the book away, and here's what Reed said to her. Mom, you never give me anything good. (laughs) Think about that sentence. Mom, the one who birthed me and brought me into existence and nursed me and took care of me. My parents, who every day give me clothing and shelter and food and water and care and support for six straight years, who've never taken a day off, y'all never give me anything good. And you're just like, bruh, what the crap is wrong with you? Read. We have demonstrated, we love you, we are committed to you, we are, we, I want you to interpret the book situation in light of the past six years. That's what God's doing with this little sermon. Guys, your life is hard and it sucks and you're, you're thrown with the middle finger to God and raging to God, God, how can you do this? You don't care, you don't care. He's like, I want you to interpret the difficulty of your life in light of the fact that I love you and I'm for you and I've demonstrated it over and over and over and over and over and over. The fact that you're breathing right now is a gift. The fact that your heart is beating right now, it's a gift. Everything is a gift of grace. Have my love for you be the fixed point and interpret everything in light of that. That's the first thing he's doing. He's just pounding it into your soul. God is for you. But there's more. There's a second thing. He also says he is with you. He is for you despite your sin, but he's also with you despite your weakness. And here's where I want to get into Gideon for a second. Uh, look at Gideon. In verse 11, it says, um, we, find, we find Gideon threshing wheat in a wine press. Now, normally, the way that you would thresh wheat, I mean, y'all probably know this. Let me just, I'll just familiarize, you know, remind you. Um, you would get this big rake thing, and you would go out in a field, and you would take this rake, and you would throw the weed up in the air, and the wind would, would take the flaky chaff and kind of uh, blow it away, and then the kernel, the part of the wheat that you would want, would fall to the ground. This was just sort of an efficient way of separating the husk from the, from the kernel without having to do it one by one individually with your hands. You would just throw it up in the air. But... Gideon's not out in the field doing this. It says he's in a wine press, which is this enclosed structure. It was like a silo that you would stomp grapes in to make wine. Why is Gideon threshing wheat in a wine press? Because he's terrified. Because if, if he's out in the field throwing the wheat up in the air, the Midianites are going to see it. They're going to come take it. And they're going to come till him. So this is the first thing that you find about Gideon. He's just, he's a coward. He's hiding, he's terrified. He's hiding in this thing. And, and God comes to him in verse 12 and says, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Which is a little ironic. Because it's not like this is King Aragorn. I mean, this is like, he's just this coward hiding in a hole, sucking his thumb. And then, 
Gideon responds in verse 13, which we already looked at. How can you say God's with us if our life is a wreck? What do you mean God's with us? So he's doubting. He doubts God's goodness. He's, he's afraid. He's doubting. But there's one more little feature I think is interesting. He's weak. He feels inadequate. Look at verse 15. He says, how can I save Israel? I'm a nobody. I'm the least in my family, and my family is the weakest. He's saying, he's, he's saying, I'm on the couch. What in the world are you saying I'm starting today? I'm the third string kicker. I, 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 like, I'm not even in my, my path. I've got Cheeto dust on my fingers. What are you talking about? In other words, he's saying, I don't have what it takes. I'm totally inadequate. I, I'm, totally, I'm, I'm insufficiently, I'm unqualified for this. I'm weak. And then verse 16, God says it again, second time, I will be with you. Here's the picture. Here's Gideon. He is dominated by fear. He is struggling. He's, a, he's doubting. He's struggling to believe and trust God. Uh, he feels overwhelmed. He feels inadequate. He feels insufficient. And God over and over keeps saying, I'm with you. I'm with you. I am with you. Here's why this is important. I, I don't know if you've seen the TV show The Office. It's, um, it's kind of this obscure niche comedy. You can find it on Netflix if you search for it. But um, in season six, um, Jim and Pam finally get married. And it's kind of this hour-long episode. <laughs> Did I just spoil something for you? Hey, hey, it's been around a while. They get married. And... Um, and uh, as it's, a, it's this awesome episode, but the whole, leading up to the whole wedding, it's kind of a disaster. Pam is uh, a, a, a wreck. Everyone's driving her crazy. Her veil on her, on her uh, dress had, was torn. And um, she's five months pregnant. Sorry, another spoiler alert. She's five months pregnant on the wedding day, which means that she thinks she's you know, fat and ugly, and she doesn't fit into her dress, and she's just kind of just a hot mess in the back. Her, her dreams of having kind of this perfect wedding are just kind of crashing and burning. And Jim comes in, and he's, you know, kind of comforting her and consoling her. It's just the two of them, and she's, she's crying, and she's like, the only thing that I could control today was this veil, and it ripped, and she's just sobbing. And so Jim reaches over, and he grabs um, a pair of scissors, and he snips his tie off. And he has this tie, and he just snips it. And she just finds this so endearing and sweet, and they hug and kiss, and they run off and get married, and it's a delightful moment. But, um, <laughs> but what is he doing? In that moment, what he is doing is he's saying, I am willing to publicly identify with you. You might be a hot mess, but I want the world to know I'm right here with you. I'm, I'm a hot mess with her. I am willing to be humiliated to be seen with her because I'm with her. I stand with her. And here's the God of the Bible, the, the creator of all that there is, the king of the universe. And he, and he sees this loser, coward, struggling man who is the bottom rung of the you know, social food chain. And he says, I'm with you. I stand with you. I am willing to identify with you. And you might think that is so sweet that God would do that, that this one time that he would stoop down and he would identify and stand with this weak person at the bottom. Do you know that God does this all throughout the entire Bible? Let, let me give you some examples. Um, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, the oldest son was the one that always, he got all the, all the power, he had all the possessions, he got all the press, he got everything. 
And all throughout the Bible, God always chooses the younger son, not the oldest. So God chooses Abel, not Cain. He chooses Isaac, not Ishmael. He chooses Jacob, not Esau. In that same Middle Eastern culture, it prized and elevated uh, women that were beautiful, that were uh, sexually faithful, and had lots of children. That's what it meant in that day and age to be an awesome woman. And we see God choosing a woman that is ugly, Leah, in the book of Genesis. We see God choosing barren women, Hannah and Sarah. We see God choosing uh, a sexually faithless and promiscuous woman, Rahab. I mean, all throughout the Bible, God is constantly choosing those that are at the bottom. He's constantly saying, I am with those that are at the bottom. I'm with those that are on the outside. In fact, when you get to the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus says, whatever you do for the poor, whatever you do for the least of these, you've done for me. Meaning, I so identify with the poor that what, when you bless them, you bless me. He is constantly, think about this, this is interesting. All throughout the Old Testament, God says, I'm a father to the fatherless, and I uphold the cause of the widow, of the orphan, and of the immigrant. Here's what's crazy about that. In that culture, it was a patriarchal society. And in a patriarchal culture, God says, I stand with the widow. She's a poor woman. In a uh, family-dominated society, God says, I stand with the orphan. In a, uh, a tribal society that was fueled by racial identity, God says, I stand with the immigrant. I stand with the foreigner. In, in a society that prized the rich, God says, I stand with the poor. All throughout the Bible, God is saying, I, am, I choose to stand with those that are at the bottom, those who are on the edges. And here's why... Um, This is really good news. Because if you're anything like me, then you do feel insecure, and you do feel weak, and you do feel overwhelmed, and you do struggle to believe that God loves you and God is real. You do struggle to uh, do life well. You do feel insufficient. You do feel unqualified for this. And if that's you, if you feel anything like me, then you have to hear God say, I am with you. I'm with you. You're my type. Think about this. I know that um, there are some people on this campus that can look at their notes for three seconds and then go into take a test and just crush it and just get A's. And uh, I know many of you that labor and labor and labor and study and study and study and struggle to get B's and C's. And you really do struggle like, uh, you really do feel like I'm just struggling to keep my head above water. Uh, some of you have been struggling with the same addiction or the same problem forever and ever. It just feels like it just keeps popping up and keeps popping up and you feel like, man, I should be past this by now. I I should be further along the road than I am by now. Uh, Some of you, um, maybe you have that friend that gets all the attention from girls or gets all the attention from guys and you just always feel like you're just living in their shadow. You're the one that's constantly overlooked. Uh, some of you still haven't found your friend group yet, and you're just kind of on this campus, kind of withering in loneliness. Uh, some of you serve on Young Life teams, and you feel like you don't have the personality of that other leader in your group, and you feel like you're not connecting with the people at your high school in, in the way that you wanted to at this point by now, and it just feels like, man, I'm just not cut out for ministry. I wanted to do it, but I just don't feel like I, don't, I have what it takes. 
Some of you feel like um, uh, incredibly lonely at UT just because of the color of your skin. That you look around this campus and there's just not a lot of people that look like you. And it can feel like I'm uh, kind of by myself over here. I'm going to feel out of place. Uh, some of you have so much sexual baggage and regret that you've brought kind of even into this room tonight. Uh, some of you feel like, man, there's no way that I can be a Christian. I'm not good enough. I'm not spiritual enough. If anything that I just said resonated with you, you have to hear God say, I am with you. You are my type. I never choose the strong and the privileged and the powerful. It's always the weak. It's always those at the bottom. It's always the outcast. It's always those on the edge. It's always the poor. It's always the outcast. It's always the losers. It's always the nobodies. It's always the people that are unqualified. It's the people that struggle with anxiety. It's the people that can't get their emotions under control. The people that feel overwhelmed. People that are just stressed out. God says, I'm with you. God so identifies with people at the bottom that when God came in the person of Jesus, he came as someone who was poor. He was was born in a poor refugee family and he lived the bulk of his life homeless. Uh, Jesus knows what it was like to become oppressed. He was arrested and the trial that he was uh, given was a complete mockery of justice. It was a total unjust trial. And so he identifies with millions of people that were uh, unjustly arrested and had been unjustly imprisoned. And Jesus knows what it's like to be weak, to be so weak that you're literally, you're so weak and vulnerable, you're stripped naked and you're exposed to the world and you're nailed to a cross. In fact, the cross was the lowest of the low. It It was the execution devoted to the lowest of the low. He reaches rock bottom. And as he's executed, he's executed outside of the city. He's basically thrown in a trash heap outside of the city. No other religion in the world says that God knows what it's like to experience suffering. God knows what it's like to experience injustice. God knows what it's like to feel weak. God knows what it's like to be a man of sorrows. Why in the world would he do it? Hold that question. Let me tell you this. I heard this story... um, a couple of years ago, it was insane. In September of, of 1940, there was a man named Witold Pilecki, Polish man, that did something insane. Um, in Warsaw, where he was living at the time, there were all these rumors of Auschwitz. Uh, but they were just rumors at the time because nobody was escaping Auschwitz to talk about it. But there were, there were rumors of what was going on. And so this dude named Witold Pilecki, who's a Christian guy, he's a Polish guy, he got a fake ID. He, got, he falsified his identification paper saying that he was Jewish. He's a Polish guy, but he got fake ideas saying that he was Jewish. And what he did is that as the Nazis were lining up all the Jewish people to get on a Nazi prisoner train, he just got at the back of the line and handed his identification papers to the Nazi person and broke into Auschwitz. While everybody's trying to break out of Auschwitz, he goes into it. And once he gets into Auschwitz... Uh, He encourages the inmates that are there. He smuggles out information. He documents war crimes. He's just sort of an encouraging presence in that space. While he was there, uh, he endured intense labor. labor. Uh, He was beaten severely. He contracted typhoid fever. Uh, He was eventually executed, and he was buried in a mass grave. True story. Now, who in the world would break into hell to liberate 
and suffer with prisoners. Jesus would. And what do you think dude got the idea from? Jesus comes into the hell of our world, as it were, and he doesn't come conquering people by force. He comes weak and poor, somebody at the bottom, so that he can meet you in your weakness, so that you would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is for you and that he's with you. So here's my question for you tonight. Is that your fixed reference point for how you interpret all of life? God is for you and God is with you. Because if, if it is, if that, becomes, if that comes home in your heart to experience that level of divine affirmation, you know what it does to you? It gets you off the couch and it gets you in the game. That's what happens to Gideon, as we're going to see next week. He literally starts getting involved. He says, I, don't know, I may be weak, I don't think I have what it takes, and I'm scared, but I'm willing to follow you. Because I, I know you're with me. And I know that you're for me. If you know that God is with you and God is for you, it'll get you off the couch, as it were, and it'll get you in the game. But that's the question. Is that your fixed point by which you interpret everything else? He's for me and he is with me. And if it's not, then I've got an invitation for you tonight. I would invite you to fix your eyes on the cross of Jesus until your heart becomes convinced that he really is for you and he's really with you. That's an invitation. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would um, fix our eyes on the cross of Christ, that we would know that, that you would stoop down so low to be with us, weak, insecure, feeble, doubting, afraid people, that our condition does not repel you, in many ways our condition attracts you, and so I pray that you would give us eyes of faith to really know in our soul that you're with us and you're for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.